Hi, this is Amanda. And this is Lindsay. We're True Creeps. Where the stories are true. And the creeps are real. We'll cover stories from grotesque gore. To the possibly plausible paranormal. To horrifying history. To tense and terrible true crime. And everything else that goes bump in the night. We want you to join us while we creep. We cover mature topics. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, everyone. Today, we are going to talk about a portion of the Texas killing field called Calder Road. This was originally going to be our first episode, but once we started digging down into this rabbit hole, we realized that there's an incredible amount of information about it, and it definitely would not fit into one episode. Yeah, Amanda and I originally talked about having our first episode in the beginning of September or end of August. Mm -hmm. And then the more we researched, we were like, we need more time. We need more time. We had actually recorded a couple episodes, too. And we were like, nope, nope, we're not ready on how to wrap our arms quite around the Texas killing fields and how much it is, because there are so many women who have died or gone missing. There is a ridiculous amount of disappearances and deaths in the certain area of Texas. And as we started looking into it, we're like, okay, there's that. Oh, there's another section. Oh, how many suspects are there? Yeah. And we compiled a spreadsheet of what we could find of 47 victims that are connected to this field. Yeah. When we say Texas killing field, what do we mean, Amanda? So the area that we looked at and the victims that we looked at, they were on the stretch of the I-40 between Galveston and League City. So it's a pretty big area. Yeah. And what's interesting, too, is that we've talked about in previous episodes, the Highway Serial Killer Initiative, but I-40 is specifically running even in northern, like as it goes north in Texas, it's also a very high crime rate. But we're just covering this small portion when we say Texas killing fields because we had to put some type of limit on what we did or we would have stopped having lives. <laughs> right. And we actually did for a while when we were trying to compile this data. Yeah. This is all I did. <laughs> but we looked from 1974 to 2020 and we noticed that the age ranges of the, the victims or, you know, disappearances were between 12 and 57 at the time of their disappearance. There's even a movie that was made about it in 2011, and it's called Texas Killing Fields. And Lindsay and I both watched it in, I think, September. So it's been a while. Yeah. I remember being very angry about it because it was really difficult to follow. So it was one of those movies where you thought to yourself, like, did I miss something? Because it kept jumping to different times and places. And you're like, how are these connected? And that part felt reminiscent of like researching for this because sometimes things are like all over the place, but there's patterns. Uh -huh. But it was very interesting. It was. And I didn't love it, but it was interesting. <laughs> it wasn't my favorite of movies. However, I understand why they made it. And even one of the actors, Sam Worthington, he had said people we never know might see the movie and go, I remember that something went down in the fields and I remember a certain car and I remember this person seemed a little dodgy and maybe a family then can know what happened to their daughters. So I think the intention of the movie too was to get that information out there and possibly find either some more of these missing people or possibly have someone come forward later going, oh, I remember something happening, which is kind of nice. Yeah. And that makes sense. I will say that one of the articles that I read when I was like looking for information about the movie, I don't think the parents knew the movie was coming out. Oh, that's horrible. 
and that it was like kind of a shock to them. So a little interesting where they're like, maybe this will help solve murders. But you would think that something at this scale, they would have like warned people that it was going to be everywhere. True. So with that being said, there are some solved and many unsolved cases. Yeah. And so today we're going to talk about the Calder Road murders. But in the future, we're also going to have standalone episodes that will include different serial killers that have been linked to the Texas killing fields. And then also we're going to have at least one episode where we talk about unsolved cases because there is a shocking amount of unsolved cases. What I find particularly fascinating is the range of information available on the disappearances. There's some where you could find 20 news articles and a whole swath of information. And there's some where all you hear is she went missing on Halloween. And like you have like three lines and that's all you have is like a physical description, a date and an age. And it's heartbreaking to think that just like the difference in how people are covered. Yeah. There's a lot of different places online that have devoted a lot of time to trying to figure out some of this, too. Yeah, yeah. I know in one of the episodes coming up, too, we got to interview someone that might have ties to this even. And still, a lot of it's unsolved and unknown. Yeah. One of the places that we utilized a lot in our research was Web Sleuths because they have a a whole forum on the Texas Killing Fields. So when we were looking to see if we had all the victims for this geographic area, we looked in Web just to make sure that we didn't miss anybody that was in this area. But today we're going to talk about Calder Road in League City. So right off of Calder Road, there is a small field that's been dubbed the Texas Killing Fields because the remains of four women have been found there. And the greater expanse of I-40 between League City and Galveston, it's now known as the Texas Killing Field. But originally it was just a small field off of Calder Road. Right. So the first woman we're going to talk about, her name was Hedy Villarreal Fye. And she was the youngest of six children, and she was 25 years old at the time of her disappearance. She was a waitress, or I guess you could call her a bartender too. Something interesting about her name too, it looks like when you're looking at it on paper, Heidi. However, it is pronounced Heidi. And she went missing on October 7th, 1983. That evening, she had left her parents' house to hitchhike to see her boyfriend in Houston, which nowadays you think of hitchhiking and you're like, no. But when we started researching the Texas killing fields, that was a common thing that happened with a lot of these victims is they were hitchhiking. Yeah. The idea of hitchhiking to me seems very, very strange because like I wouldn't get in a car with a stranger. Except if it's an Uber. Yeah. Now we're like, you're an Uber. (laughs) You're an unofficial taxi. You're legitimate. Also, I only use Lyft. But anywho, so I dated a woman. Things did not go well for various reasons. One night, we stop at a gas station. She's driving my car. I'm sitting in my car. She goes inside and she comes out with two young men. Okay. And she's like, we're going to give them a ride. (laughs) How are we? And I look over at her like she's insane, right? Right. Because it's crazy. And so looking back on this, just like the amount of red flags in, in this interaction is startling. But at this point, I'm living in Jacksonville, Florida, and I'm not super familiar with like the highways and how to get places. I always just put things in my phone unless it was like down like a mile and a half. Right. Fair. But so they are giving us directions to their house. They've also agreed that 
I wasn't there for the conversation where my ex agreed to give them a ride in exchange for them rapping for us in the car. But that was the agreement (laughs) (laughs) that they were going to freestyle rap while she drove them in my car. And so... You weren't expecting this, right? And so, no. One is freestyle rapping, and the other is giving directions. I would have preferred if he'd rapped the directions. Yeah, I would have too. I actually probably would have preferred if they were giving correct directions because it turns out they were both very stoned and couldn't remember how to get back to where they were staying. Okay. And then it had us go like 20 miles in the opposite direction, which I'm like, why are we going this far? It was like 12 o'clock at night. We went to the gas station for a snickety snack. She comes out. We're driving strangers to their house. And so eventually they realize that we're going in the wrong direction and give us the correct directions, but very precisely, which was interesting. Okay. They were something like, oh, we're going the wrong way. You're going to want to like turn around, get off on this exit, make a left, make a right. You know what I mean? I was like, were they taking you out to the middle of nowhere to kill you? They did. We were going out to a more suited place. Yeah. Happy you're alive still. Me too. I just like to think they were just like, you know what? No, you're going to be too difficult to murder. (laughs) (laughs) That must have been it. Yeah. When we dropped home, they're like, do you want to come in? And my ex looked at me and I was like, no, good night. And I remember (laughs) when she was getting into the car, I looked at her and I was like, who are these people? She's like, I have a really good feeling. That they're going to murder you. It was an adventure. I was going to say, have you watched Criminal Minds lately? I have. (laughs) I have. Well, okay. That's my hitchhiking story. (laughs) Anyway, we're not talking about me. The reason why she was hitchhiking, at the time when she left, her father was watching a baseball game on TV. He also, just to give you more details about her, she had a six-year-old daughter at the time, which makes this even more horrific. So she never makes it to her boyfriend's house. She had stopped at a gas station that was located on Hobbs Road and West Main Street off the I-48 to use the payphone. Remember those things? Mm-hmm. So the gas station clerk later on, he remembers seeing her use the payphone, which was located like outside the building, but no one heard of her since. So Hedy's father searched every day for her, and he was partially paralyzed from a stroke and even had to use a cane to walk, yet he was out there daily looking in the fields for her. Oh, man. So jump to April. Remember, she disappeared in October. So in April, a dog carried her skull from the woods near his home back to his family, and his family was like, oh, my gosh, and called the police. I can't even imagine if my dog brought me something like that. Yeah. Also, I couldn't imagine that being how someone find your child. Yeah, that's awful. Yeah. So police then searched the area where the home was and about 300 yards from the home where the dog was, there was the humble oil field. And that's where they found basically a near skeletonized body lying on its back under a tree. So they used dental records to show that it was a match and it was Heidi. So Unfortunately, they weren't able to find like a direct cause for her death, but they did note that she did have broken ribs. So unfortunately, she might have been beaten to death. That's so sad. And that's also another kind of thing that we noticed a few different times as we were researching is that many of the women, they couldn't identify the cause of death because it took so long for their remains to be found. Yeah. That nature had happened. Yeah. And I want to say, too, I had read something a while back that said that the search for Heidi wasn't as intense as some of the other ones that we're going to talk about because she was a bartender. So she could just go wherever, or, you know, could have gone home with someone. I don't know what their reasoning was, but they kind of wrote it off, at least my understanding 
understanding of like when I'm reading about the case, it sounded like everyone just wrote it off for the longest time. And that makes me really, really sad. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting that, you know, even I guess oh, as somebody who's born in the 80s, the 80s doesn't feel that far away, but it is. It's getting further and further away. But, you know, you think of a time period where there was going to be misogyny that's like mixed with your career choice. Yeah. And I don't think the 80s. Right. I think like way earlier than that. I don't think in the 80s, like they were deeming women who are bartenders as suddenly unworthy of an adequate search. Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, having a certain type of job doesn't make you more important to search for. No, it definitely doesn't. And another interesting couple things about Heidi is she has ties to two other women that were murdered. Hmm. And we're going to talk about Laura Miller in a minute, but she was last seen at the same exact place Laura Miller was last seen. And then on top of that, she hung out at the same bar, which was called the Texas Moon Club, where Ellen Beeson and her murderer, who was Clyde Edwin Hedrick, would frequent. She ended up being killed in 1984. So, you know, a year later. And it's believed that she might have even known both her and possibly her killer. Woof. And I've also seen in Texas Killing Fields off of Calder Road, but many of the cases that we looked at, that there were times when remains were found close to one another that they were very confident did not have the same killer. So it's completely possible that more than one killer utilized the same field as a dumping ground. I can't even wrap my head around that part. Like, imagine they're bringing another body and they're just like, oh, this is just where bodies go, you know? Yeah. But if they walked past one of them, I don't know. I don't know why that image comes in my head but yeah well I think it's because okay and I live in Baltimore County Maryland and there's not giant areas of undeveloped land that somebody isn't on or checking or looking through to my knowledge one of our listeners and one of my really good friends Kate lives in League City and she even said she was like there's not much there it's just a lot of like undeveloped road off of I-40 oh, okay and that like it's not altogether surprising that people could dump stuff there because there's lots of areas where people just aren't going. Yeah. I also asked her if they ever added security cameras on I-40 after they realized this, but the answer is no. That would cost too much money. Yeah. So a couple months later in September, that's when Laura Miller goes missing. And remember, she disappeared from the exact same place Heidi did. So right off of Hobbs Road and Main Street. Tim Miller is her father. And we're going to go a lot into him later. But he actually is a pretty big well-known name in missing persons cases now because of the work that he's done. He was initially worried that there was some sort of connection between his daughter and Heidi. But the police pretty much said, no, don't worry about it. No, don't worry about it. That was even before he knew that they had disappeared at the same place. He just saw the connection like another girl went missing in our area. And the police again were just like, don't worry about it. They're not connected. Heidi was a bartender. Laura isn't like her. Ugh. And the, the police, I guess, from what I understand, almost insinuated that Heidi was responsible for what happened to her because she worked at a bar. Ugh. Yeah. That's just so gross. Right, right. So Tim also pushed to try to find out where Heidi was found, like where her body was found, which field. And the officer was adamant that, nope, there's no connection. Don't worry about it. And also, you can't go to the field because that's private property and it's fenced in. Ugh. So 
they just were very dismissive, didn't even really want to help him. And that just breaks my heart for what he had to go through. Yeah. The officer that Tim talked to then insisted that Laura was just a runaway. And that's another common theme that we're going to see with some of these is that the officers are like, oh, they fall in this age range. They're just a runaway. Just every young woman is a runaway. I don't understand that. I mean, okay, I know that there are people who run away, right? I'm sure it happens. But the amount of times it seems like law enforcement says they're a runaway versus the number of kids that are actually runaways feels highly disproportionate. And the idea that you go, oh, they're this age, they run away. They're just a hormonal teenage girl. They're just hormonal. Mm -hmm. That's kind of what it sounds like to me is like, oh, they're just but a woman. They're just having teenage feelings. They couldn't possibly be in danger. Right. Because even if they ran away, they could still be in danger and they're worth looking for because they're a child. You would think. You would think. Yeah, absolutely. Well, understandably, Tim started taking her disappearance very hard. I read a book on some of these disappearances, and it's by Catherine Casey, and it's called Deliver Us. And when I say that he took this hard from the book, I just included a quote. His heart sprinted every time the phone rang or a car stopped at the front of their house. He lost his job and was very depressed. 17 months later, he even checked himself into a hospital. That's so sad. Can you imagine 17 months waiting for answers? Yeah. That's a very long time. Yeah. On February 4th, 1986, Tim's wife was reading him a Galveston County Daily News article about a decomposing body of an unidentified female being discovered in the Calder Road oil field the day before. This is exactly where Heidi was found, by the way. Same exact place. Four boys were on dirt bikes and they smelled something rotting and they tracked down where it was and the notified place. The investigators searched and they also found bones protruding from the ground along with a badly decomposing body body. Both were found within 200 yards of a tree where Hedy's bones were also found two years before. So if they had just listened to him, yeah, he could have not saying it would have made anything better, but maybe he wouldn't have had to check himself into a hospital, you know, like just knowing what happened and not having to stress about it every single day all day long. Yeah. Well, and I mean, if they had looked, then perhaps more evidence would have been found. Right. Because we know that, you know, time can kind of and nature can kind of raise some evidence. So the longer they left her there. Exactly. The less evidence there was going to be. Exactly. Yeah. So it it made the chances of finding who did it nearly impossible. I will say too, from what I understand, the article also said from a League City detective, no local missing persons case seems to be related. So they're just like, there's a body. We don't know who it is or anything about it. So Tim's wife, Jan, she went to the League City police station and brought Laura's dental records and samples of her clothing, hoping that hair could be found and, you know, they could use it to compare. Yeah. And then they finally confirmed it was Laura. So had she not seen this random article, had she not gone to the police station, they probably wouldn't have put two and two together, at least for a while. I like the idea that they went, "Mm, don't know. Right. Right. I guess I I can't wrap my brain around the idea of your job is to find who did this and find who this is. And I don't know, seems like a sufficient answer, especially when there's tools that you can use and there's people who you can contact. Exactly. Well, they didn't have as many tools as we do today, which we'll get to in a bit. But still, they could have at least found something. Maybe there's a fingerprint. Maybe there was something. We don't know for sure. But I feel like at least that could have put some of it to rest because now in poor Tim Miller's head you know what if there was a clue what if this could have been solved what if you know he could have done something yeah 
But once the police finished processing the scene, him and his wife visited the field. And it wasn't anything like the police had led him to believe. There weren't any fences. He could have easily gotten to it. If they would have just released the information to him, he would have went and checked himself. Yeah. So he thinks that he probably would have found Laura days after she disappeared if they hadn't lied to him. And then 10 months after that, Tim and his family placed a cross that he had made where Laura's body was found. And he would continue to visit this cross often. And we'll talk more about this part in Tim in a bit. So in 1991, the remains of another woman were found. And originally, she wasn't identified. So she was called Janet Doe. And her remains were found by two people riding horses that were from a nearby ranch. Near the remains, the police found a belt that they believe was used to tie her to the tree while she was sexually assaulted. Again, the body was badly decomposed. The medical examiner still had a hard time examining her remains, but animals had been tearing away at her and her skull was not found with her body. It was found a few days later nearby. The medical examiner was able to estimate that the person was 24 to 30 years old. And it looked like there was injuries to her upper spine that may have caused her death. Once the skull was found, the ME found evidence that she had been struck on the right side of her face with an object that looked flat. Oh, no. Yeah. And both her jaw and her cheekbone were broken. So she went through a lot. The Emmy settled on strangulation as her cause of death. And yeah, she went through a horrific amount of abuse before she died. And I think that the idea that you could remain also unknown after having this happen to you, very heartbreaking. Janet Doe was identified as Donna Prudhomme in January of 2019 through advances in DNA technology. I can't even imagine waiting that long to know what happened to your loved one. No, it's an unfathomable amount of time. There is this part of me in my head that would have thought like, I hope they went and started a new life and are happy someplace. You know what I mean? Like, I think that's like where I would have wanted to be. Yeah. And living in uncertainty for so long only to find out that your loved one meant this violent death. Yeah. Feels extra bad. It's horrible. And police thought that Donna may have frequented bars on NASA Road 1. And so, again, they were like, she's a woman who goes to bars. How dare her? Yeah. Donna's sister, Diane Gosselin Hastings, never stopped looking for her sister. And I want to think she filed a missing persons case, but I'm not 100% sure. But they thought that she frequented bars on NASA Road 1. And we know from Heidi that if that was the case, they may have kind of deprioritized her. Right. And then Donna was one of six children and she was married and had two sons and she left with her children when her husband became abusive and she took her sons to live with her parents while she was kind of getting everything in order yeah and she would call like once a week and when they didn't hear from her they started to get suspicious because that wasn't like her right and also another heartbreaking note one of her sons passed away before her remains were identified so he never knew what happened to his mom horrible that's so sad that's awful yeah yeah so before Donna Prudhomme's body was found, there was a Jane Doe, which is why she was Janet Doe. So there was a Jane Doe that was found in 1986 by two young boys who were riding their bike. So she was found with Laura Miller and the ME estimated that she had died like two to four weeks before she had been found and she had a bullet hole in her spine. So totally different from what happened to the others. Yeah, completely different. We know that Donna had been beaten and then we didn't have a cause of death for Heidi, correct? No, they didn't want to give one because they didn't know for sure. But she did have some broken ribs. Yeah. For Laura Miller, they just said cause of death unknown. So when her remains were found, she was estimated to be 22 to 30 years old. And they noted a gap between her teeth. 
And so in 2019, much at the same time that they were searching Donna Prudhomme's DNA to find out who she was, they were also looking for Jane Doe. And Jane Doe was identified as Audrey Cook. She had last been seen in December of 1985. She worked as a mechanic. I have seen differing accounts of where she was from or living. I saw that she was from Alabama, but that she was also from Memphis, Tennessee. So I think maybe she kind of moved around the South a little bit. Maybe. So she also had two sons. And interestingly, some of her associates at the time said that she was known to buy and sell cocaine, which seemed so specific. Like when I was reading about her, it was kind of included in a laundry list of just things about her. And I was like, what an interesting allegation. And another instance of like, nope, she's a drug dealer. We're not going to look. Yeah. So those were the four victims who were found in the Texas killing fields off of Calder Road. Yeah. So we're we're going to get into some of the suspects, but also I'm going to continue with Tim Miller, Laura Miller's father, because he has an odd tie to one of the suspects. So, of course, while Laura was missing before they found her body. I had said that he was taking it very, very hard, right? So he started to drink. It escalated. Makes sense. His grief was overwhelming, right? Yeah. So once she was found, right? Remember how I said he had made that cross and put it in the field? He would then go and spend nights in that field waiting for the killer to return. At one point, it's noted that he might have even been going and bringing a gun. By the time Amanda's done telling you about Tim Miller, you you will have an immense amount of respect for him, but I cannot imagine how heartbroken he must have felt right when he found about about his daughter there and like that's the only thing he could do like he could not bring her back but like he would be there if somebody came to do the same thing again and honestly it made sense because how many women were found in the same little area it made sense for him to wait there because that person might return like obviously they were using that field over and over again yeah and i i wonder how many women he actually did save but he doesn't even know about you know what i mean because he was there absolutely it is a possibility so he would also visit the field to search for clues he hoped to find any sort of trace of laura he was looking for clothing he was looking for the cross that she used to wear and unfortunately he didn't really find anything and then just to pile it on to poor tim three years after her body was found the remains were finally released to tim so that he could have a funeral when leaving the service tim noticed that Heedy was buried only 150 feet away from Laura. They disappeared from the same place and then they were laid to rest in the same place too. That That's just so sad. And it's interesting that he, you know, noticed it. Yeah. Too, because all along he was like, there's a connection. There's a connection. Yeah. So he continued to investigate himself. And then he also had theories that it could be a neighbor or it was possibly someone named Robert Abel. And I'm going to jump to Robert Abel because what Tim was doing and him. Intertwine. Yeah. So Robert Abel, he became a suspect in 1993 for Laura Miller's murder. He was a retired NASA engineer and he had a horse stable near the fields. He also had a very, very bad temper. And also those were things that the people were riding when they found Donna Prudhomme. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. And when I say he had a horrible temper, he was married multiple times. His second wife told police at one point that he had told her, if you don't have sex with me, I'm going to kill you. His third wife told League City Police Department that he should be a suspect. And it's because he beats his horses with a pipe. And I was like, fuck this guy. (laughs) Yeah, he's a garbage human, clearly. Yeah. Even if he didn't murder them, you don't abuse animals. Yeah. So when Tim Miller 
started suspecting Robert Abel. He almost became obsessed with him. And police started to investigate Abel, but they weren't finding any evidence. So Tim decided he would essentially stalk him. He would leave angry messages on his phone. He even confronted him a handful of times. He would also park in front of the street, like where Abel lived, and just watch him. I mean, could you blame him? No, not at all. Not at all. I feel like I would also just be there waiting. I'd be like, you're going to mess up and I'm going to fucking be there. Exactly. I feel like that's just what he was thinking. Yeah, like I'm going to find him in the act and I'm going to save as many people as I can. Yeah. So there's one instance where Tim even like jumped at him with a gun and Abel said to him, all those girls were whores anyway. And Tim said, I could murder you now and I probably should. But if you're dead, they'll never be able to find out who Jane and Janet Doe are. That made me sad. Which is so sweet because like he doesn't have to care about them. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, he could very well be like, I want revenge for my daughter. And that's all that matters. But he was like equally worried for the families of women he'd never met. Right. Right. So years later, Tim Miller does end up apologizing to him. And he he basically in his head cleared it. Didn't think that it was him. However, there's more to this. Abel all around, like I said, he beats horses. He's just kind of a sketchy guy, right? Yeah. There was a writer for Texas Monthly named Skip Hollinsworth who did an interview with him at one time. And he said that he seemed humble, but then he said a little too much, which kind of piqued his curiosity there. Yeah. And his quote was, we sat down for a cup of coffee and he looks at me and says, I had this bad rotator cuff injury, so there's no way I could have shot one of those girls. Put her in my car, driven her to my land and then carried her body out. And in his words, it just seemed like it was one detail too much. I think that's a few details too much. Amanda, if your child came to you and said, Mother, I did not climb on top of the counter, reach inside the cookie jar, steal three cookies, then go to the corner of the couch to eat them. Would you not then believe he (laughs) climbed on top of the counter, took three cookies, then went to the corner of the couch to eat them? That's the worst denial in the history of every denial I've ever heard. Right? I mean, not even saying that he wouldn't have chocolate all over his face at that time either. But (laughs) yeah, it's so ridiculous. And why would you say that to a reporter? Because that means you're thinking more into the murder than anyone else. Yeah. Even if it was just that. That's just very weird to like put the steps together and then say them out loud. Yeah. I don't know. All of it just seems very, very weird. Exactly. Exactly. So while Tim Miller is stalking him, police are investigating him. Abel became an outcast. People would yell at him that he was a killer. He couldn't really do anything without being harassed. So people even thought that Miller might even kill him, which he came close, obviously. Police, unfortunately, had nothing to connect him to the killings, just that he fit the FBI profile. I mean, here's my thing. Sigh. I don't think that fitting a profile is enough and you can be a dirt bag and not be that kind of dirt bag. And I think that's what's kind of hard is that it's like, right, he's a bad person. How bad of a person is he? Right. I don't know. So overall, nothing was ever linked to him in the murders. He was never charged. Miller, like I said, eventually gave up. He had apologized. And then in July of 2005, he drove a golf cart onto a railroad track and died. It was ruled an accident, not a suicide. And Tim Miller believes that he helped to destroy his life and feels some responsibility for it. Because he's such a good man. I know. I know. There was another person who said that Abel was not a good person. If he thought he may have been arrested, 
it may not have been an accident. And we know that we came light years in forensics. And I would imagine that right. you would start to get more and more nervous as time went on. Because imagine being somebody who killed somebody in the 80s and then it's 2000 and suddenly you're watching Bones and... <laughs> Zoe Deschanel's sister, Suzanne, I can't remember. I know that's rude. Is like identifying the murderer of someone who is in like a vat of peanut butter and they know every single thing about them down to like the dirt on their shoes. Right. If you think that that's what the world right. is now, I could see being like, oh, I'm going to be going to prison. Maybe. I mean, that's a possibility. Now, back to Tim Miller. And the reason why I'm going back and forth is because, again, this was like intertwined. So he felt bad about it. And during all of this, so like as he's, you know, looking into him and then also while he's starting to back away, he started to lease the property near the killing field in 1998. And he even got heavy equipment, backhoes, pumps to drain the pond, all kinds of stuff to try to search for more information. He only found scraps of fabric from what appeared to be a woman's blouse edged in lace. Tim also filed a lawsuit for the records of Laura's case and received pictures of evidence. So here's something that he didn't know. One of the pieces was a blue checkered Western man shirt. And in one of the pictures, it looks like it had some stains that could possibly be blood. So when the shirt was originally found, DNA testing didn't exist yet. But it did in the late 90s. Yeah. So Tim tried to get the shirt tested, but the shirt had disappeared. Just the bumbling incompetence. Yeah, it's gone. No one knows what happened to it. Over the years, Tim started helping search for missing people in southern Houston. And then in 2000, he actually began EquiSearch. I think one of the quotes that made me begin to just cry every time I read anything about Tim Miller and how wonderful he is is a quote when he's talking about Janet and Jane Doe. And so he said, as strange as this may sound, we don't know who Jane Doe is and we don't know who Janet Doe is. And I am their only voice. I am father to all the girls out there. Even more important than finding out who killed them would be to go ahead and get Jane and Janet Doe identified. That's so sweet. And, uh, you know, lucky for him, they were finally identified. I mean, it took forever. Yeah. But I mean, he won that at least. Yeah. And it's again, like the idea that he had he there's a wonderful heart is the reason why he was concerned. Do you know what I mean? Like he didn't get anything. Right. From being their advocate. He was just being wonderful. But so, yeah, Tim Miller fans right here. <laughs> but so in 2000, he began EquiSearch and it has a very good reputation for helping find missing people throughout the U.S. And so he yep. was even invited to Washington, D.C. to be in their room when George W. Bush signed a bill setting aside $10 million to expand the Amber Alert program, which he should be a part of everything now <laughs> as he should be. Keep him in the room. Yeah. He also assisted in the search of Elizabeth Smart and Kaylee Anthony, as well as very recently, Vanessa Guillen. While working with EquiSearch, he returned home to find a weird letter at the EquiSearch headquarters. And the letter had words cut out of magazines and newspapers, and it was glued together. So think quintessential ransom note. It's actually really scary. It is available online, and it is addressed to him, like cut out Tim Miller. And it starts out, boo, it's me you're looking for. Mm -mm. Yeah, it's very creepy. And it doesn't seem to say anything coherent. No, it's just kind of nonsense. But it's like, I am too smart. And I tampered with evidence, which gives me the chills because evidence was missing later on. There's also that more bodies and bones are to come out. Remains to be found. Phantom question mark. Yeah. Police won't get me. It's chilling. The first time Amanda and I talked about this, 
I remember looking at this very chilling ransom letter and we talked about like, oh, like I wonder when the first instance of a ransom note like this is. And I don't know if I told you this. Maybe I did. Maybe I didn't. But I looked it up and it was in a movie. Like it's a Hollywood invention. It wasn't like kidnappers did this first. Yeah. And if anybody has like anything to the contrary, please tell me. But everything that I saw was that it was a Hollywood invention. No. So they did this. Yeah, they did this. So, ugh, don't like that. No. The same evening he got the letter, he found that Laura's cross had been broken and knocked down. So he repaired it. As you'll remember, Amanda mentioned that one of Tim's suspects was his neighbor. On April 4th of 2013, Clyde Hedrick was arrested for the murder of Ellen Ray Beeson. And again, Ellen Ray and Clyde were the people that they thought that he knew from the same bar. And so two months after Clyde's arrest, while looking at an article about Equity, Surgeon Tim, three different inmates claim that Hedrick had made a confession that he had had sex with Tim's daughter, then murdered her. And he, again, he was the neighbor that Tim had originally suspected. When I read about that, it gives me chills too, because Tim Miller knew a lot before the police did. Just by yeah. thinking a little bit and putting together, oh, another woman disappeared in a nearby area. Maybe they're connected. As yeah. simple as that. And no one would listen to him. And it just breaks my heart that no one would listen to him. And I think that's one of the things when you hear about armchair detectives nowadays, I I think that like sometimes like the true crime community gets a little hate for being so interested in true crime. Yeah. The fact of the matter is, is that sometimes like people aren't looked for. Nope. And cases aren't taken seriously. But so in 2020, Tim Miller sued Galveston County for the second time. The first lawsuit was in 2000. So he buried Laura. And then after she was already buried, they called him and told him that they had additional remains. So he exhumed his daughter and reburied her after receiving what he thought was the last of her remains. Then in October of 2019, the medical examiner's office called to notify him that human remains were found in a file box with Laura's case number. That's how we handle human remains. We put them in a box. Can't even fathom. Like, how did they mess up? Not just once, but multiple times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they don't. E- they didn't even know if those were her remains. They wanted him to give a DNA sample to confirm they were hers. And if they are, he'll have to bury his daughter for a third time, which absolutely disgusting. Yeah. So the other suspect that we wanted to discuss was Mark Roland Stallings. So just to start, he confessed to the murders in the actual field off of Calder Road, but he would have been in his teens at the time of the murders. So the validity of those confessions is called into question. He was interviewed while he was in prison, and he said that when he was around seven years old he put his hands on a young girl's neck and as she was gra- like gasping for air he felt thrilled and then he said like don't tell I won't do it again and apologized to the girl and like he vividly remembered that at seven he was sexually abused by a woman starting when he was six but the woman was never identified when he was 11 he stabbed another kid in the schoolyard and then he threatened to slit the boy's throat so the kid would say it was an accident so my gosh 11 so he's very young and he's very aggressive this reminds me of Kenneth McDuff, by the way. It does, yeah. Yeah, big Kenneth McDuff energy. He also raped one of his relatives who was only 13 at knife point. In his early 20s, in the mid-80s, he was married with two kids. He and one of his friends picked up a sex worker named Champagne. She didn't want to do what they wanted her to do. They thought that she didn't really have a choice. So they took her to an abandoned trailer and raped her. And his friend went into the back room where she was and then came out and said, I strangled that bitch. 
Stallings went in and he found her with a red scarf tied around her neck. He then put her body in a closet, found three stray dogs, put them in the trailer, pulled the handle off so that the dogs couldn't get out in the hopes that they would eat her remains. Police found her remains two weeks later and Stallings and his friends were never arrested. I don't know if there was if they knew who did it disgusting like absolutely absolutely disgusting in every way like in every way it's disgusting yeah it's it's the only thing it doesn't have is cannibalism i wouldn't put it past him yeah in 1988 he met robert abel and when he describes it when he met robert abel he could sense like the same dark side he had in robert and that they both viewed women similarly he worked on robert's ranch yeah with robert abel's wives accounts too like he wasn't far off from this so this is according to stallings but one day abel came to him and asked if he knew where to get a sex worker stallings took him to the red light district which was on the southeast side of town and they picked up a young woman who they took back to the ranch so abel told stallings that he wanted to keep the woman overnight and the next day stallings described abel as edgy and that abel told stallings that he had killed the woman they picked up so that evening stallings went to the woman's body and tied it up with nylon rope put it on the back of their hay baler then pushed it like used it to basically carry her body into the woods he stripped her clothes off and then put her in the shallow grave which doesn't really feel necessary by the way like he didn't need to degrade her one more time i think it was to hide if there's any evidence from both of them that makes sense that makes sense but so he put her in just enough to conceal her but not so deep that animals couldn't scavenge the scene which seems like something that he is apt to try. So not long after that murder, he picks up another sex worker at the same place as he picks up the previous woman. So he trapped her in his truck by rigging his truck handle to not open from the inside. When he went to get her out, she tried to escape, but he hit her with a boot. And so she kind of got a little groggy. He then raped her. As she started to come back to, she tried to bite him and then he punched her and choked her with a sock and killed her. Again, he removed her clothes, dug a shallow grave, and then buried her. He then threw her clothes in a convenience store dumpster. He bragged to Abel, but Abel got kind of like angry. So, and Abel specifically didn't want any more bodies on his land, which fair to get him back in 1991. Stalling says he picked up another sex worker and he raped and strangled her. He then took her to the killing fields off of Calder Road. And according to Stallings, this was Donna Prudhom. He said that he didn't try to hide the body because he wanted to frame Abel. By September of 1991, Abel was already fitting the FBI profile and they were suspecting him. And then so by 1996, he was back in prison for possession of a firearm when he shot an old man through a window. It didn't kill him, but it still shot him. Still random. Yeah, very random. Just he seems like a gem of a human. So so while he was serving his two 50 year sentences, Stallings tried to escape. He did so by taking a guard hostage with a gun that had been smuggled in. He held the guard hostage for four hours and he then received three more convictions. These four aggravated assault one for aggravated kidnapping. So his sentence was that he got life and would not be eligible for parole until April 2021. 2020, the sequel. There's no reason he should be eligible for parole ever. No, 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 absolutely not. There's no prison overcrowding right now. I mean, there is, but not for murderers. Anywho, so in his twisted brain, 
He thinks that he would get another chance to escape if he confessed to murdering women who had died in Fort Ben and in Galveston. The author of the book that Amanda had mentioned earlier, Catherine Casey, took Janet Doe's autopsy and the description of what Stallings said he had done to a friend of hers who was a retired assistant medical examiner. And he confirmed that they could match. Yeah, the details of it. She was significantly beaten. And I feel like if you describe significantly beating someone that might match, you know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Stallings was told that Abel was spooked and was claiming that the spirits of the dead women were stalking him. I mean, he's fair. He deserves it. So through a mutual friend, Stallings sends a message to Abel. He says that the girls were in fact watching him and they moved on to the next world. So he said that the only way that Abel could get them to leave him alone would be for Abel to die too. And if he crossed over, that they wouldn't fear him anymore. Yeah. So a few years later, he dies and Stalling thinks that it's in part because of what he said to him. That's crazy. So ultimately though... Right now, all of these are still technically unsolved. Yes. Which is so absolutely sad, especially because we know first, I mean, I guess we don't know because he could have just been saying random stuff to try to get another way to escape. Yeah. So one other suspect I do want to bring up only because he has ties to possibly Laura is Clyde Hedrick. And remember how we said he was arrested for the murder of Ellen Ray Beeson, and she technically doesn't fall into the Texas killing field, but he does have some ties. He's the one that when he was in prison, he had seen a picture of Tim Miller and said essentially that he had sex with his daughter and murdered her. Disgusting. Absolutely disgusting. So he gave information, right? Makes Tim Miller suspect him because he basically admitted it to other inmates. So I'm not going to go into who he is convicted of killing. And her name is Ellen Ray Beeson, like I said. But I want to bring up just something that came up during his trial that Tim Miller noticed. So one, in Hedrick's abuse of a corpse trial, which was Beeson's, he mentioned that he was familiar with the field he put Beeson in because his company uses it to dump old roofing tiles. Yeah. And one of the things we didn't mention earlier was that they found roofing tiles in the field. Exactly. So remember how I said Tim would like... Like scour that field all the time. Tim remembers seeing roofing tiles where Laura was found. So he also described the night of Beeson's death. He mentioned that he had taken off his shirt, which was a red Western one, and draped it over her face. Again, this reminds Tim of the shirt that was found near Laura's remains, and it was an old blue Western shirt. Yeah. But unfortunately, there's no way of comparing the two because that one was lost. On August 25th of 2014, Tim Miller filed a wrongful death suit against Hedrick for Laura's murder. Yeah. So what's interesting is that we know that in 2014 that Tim Miller filed a wrongful death suit against Hedrick, but I can't find any resolution. Can you? I haven't been able to. Yeah, it's interesting. And so in his wrongful death suit against Hedrick for Lars' murder, Tim says, I feel like I'm the father to all four girls whose bodies were found out in that field. And I want Clyde Hedrick to tell the truth about what happened to them. That's all I want the truth. And I want him to tell us who Jane Doe is. I want to be able to tell her family what happened to her. That's so sad. Yeah. And so I even saw that he'd given him a Bible and forgiven him because he was like, I can either let this consume me, like my hate for you, 
or I can forgive you. Like, those are my options. Right. So when he filed this, too, there is a quote from him as well from Tim Miller that says, I have no doubt in my mind that Clyde is responsible for Laura, Katie, and Audrey's deaths. But he says Jane Doe at the time, because that was a little before they were able to finally identify who she was. Yeah. These three, even though they weren't convicted as of yet for what happened to these girls, I feel like all three of them probably played some sort of role in at least one of them. Yeah, I agree. I think one of the hardest pills to swallow when it comes to our justice system is that sometimes murders are not tried, especially when it seems like everything points to them. Right. I think that's very difficult to come to terms with. And I know in some cases it might make sense because that person's already serving life in prison. But here for Hedrick, that's not the case. Hopefully something more comes of this. I know that Tim Miller's still working on everything. He's working with them. He's working with other missing cases. He He's amazing. The best. Yeah, he's absolutely the best. He's top shelf human. I do think Stallings and Abel contributed to some of these somehow. Yeah, no, I do too. I think that it may have been a combination of Stallings, Abel, and Hedrick. Not working in concert, but maybe at the same time, maybe Stallings and Abel were working together. Yeah. Absolutely terrifying and awful. So as we mentioned, we're going to have some other episodes coming up on Texas Killing Fields. We plan to have one on other cases that remain to unsolve, but also on some of the disappearances, which are largely unsolved as well. And then we also plan to have some episodes coming up on killers that we know had victims on the stretch of I-40 between Galveston and League City. If you have any other true crime cases or disappearances that you'd like us to cover, you can shoot us an email or a message. We have all of our contact information and our social media handles on our outro. And we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. For more information on our sources, please visit our website, truecreeps.com. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can follow us on Instagram at truecreepspod, on Facebook at facebook.com slash truecreepspod, and on Twitter at truecreeps. We'd love for you to keep creeping with us. So if you like this episode, please subscribe, rate, review, and share the show with your fellow creeps. 